and uh, we don't do that often enough. I think sometimes we come with our shopping list before the Lord and say, Lord, here's, what, here's your to-do list for the day when we really ought to spend a whole lot more time thinking about just how good He has been, how faithful He is, and all of His promises. And so let's take some time now just to thank Him. If you need to get with somebody to pray with them or if you need to come up here on these steps and kind of like an altar before the Lord or if you need to um, send somebody a text or something like that just to encourage them uh, feel free to do that but at the same time don't forget just to say thank you and to give a word of praise to the Lord who has been so good so kind and so faithful to you throughout your life and he will continue to do that so let's bow our heads and let's close our eyes and Give him praise. Give him thanks. Father, as we pray and as we say thank you, we can't help but, of course, think about our redemption. You could have allowed us to be born and to live in a country where we would have never heard the name of Jesus, never heard of the gospel, never heard of the plan of salvation or anything like that at all. But you didn't. You've allowed us to uh, hear. And uh, we could have been just like so many people, the Pharisees who actually saw Jesus work miracles and yet they didn't believe. And we could have been just blinded and uh, our minds darkened and beyond understanding as Romans 3 says. And as the scripture says no one seeks after God, we find picture after picture after picture in the gospels of a loving God who is a good shepherd who seeks after his sheep. Thank you, Lord for seeking and finding us and bringing us into the fold. Now, Father, I pray that you would also give us the same compassion for other people and the same zeal and desire for other people to be saved, not just to be a taker, but that we might be givers, sharing the word of God and giving the gospel to other people, that we might not just think about us, us for and no more, as we say, and people like us, but what about the people who are not like us? What about the people who don't live in our country? What about the people who were not raised as we were raised? And we want to pray for people all around the world and in our own nation as well for them to be saved. Whether they're rich or whether they're poor. Whether they're powerful and the elite or whether they're the nobodies. We pray, Father, that your gospel would move north to south, east to west. And we pray, Father, that you would save people, that today would be a day of salvation. Pray for anyone who is here today who has not been saved. I pray that just the singing of these songs has done something to stir their heart and their conscience and to show them that they're a sinner before God and there's only one way to be right with you. And it's not through anything they do, it's through the sacrifice of Christ. May they put their trust fully in Jesus and his resurrection and trust you and surrender to you as Lord today. And Father, we pray that you would meet 
all kinds of needs today. There are people who are sick. We pray for them. Pray that you would heal them. Pray that you would bless their doctors and their treatments. But especially just bless their own body that they would be able to overcome disease and be raised up. And uh, we've got a lot of people, and I include myself in this, that the only reason we're standing here today is by the grace of God. Thank you for that. Do it for other people as well. We pray, Lord, for parents who have children that are wandering from God. And we pray that prodigals would return home and pray that parents would never give up hope and that they would continue to pray. We pray, Lord, for children's camp as it is upcoming. And we ask you, Lord, to bless it mightily. And bless all of the adults and bless all of the children. And bless the proclamation of the gospel. And may it be fruitful during this next week. And so Lord, we just want to say we love you. And you have been so, so good. And you have been faithful to us. And we praise you and thank you for that. Far more than we ever deserve. Help us to be faithful to you and to love you as we should. And also to share your goodness in our life with other people in whatever form that might take. And we pray this now as we uh, look into your word. Give us insight. Teach us today. And give us a love for the word of God. A hunger for the word of God. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We are going to start a new book. We finished up first in Second Thessalonians. And uh, where we finished up with Second Thessalonians, kind of with those exhortations, just live your life quietly. Live an ordinary life in supernatural power for the glory of God. Well, we uh, get to the first chapter of the book of John, and then everything changes. This is one of the greatest passages of theology. Theology is the study of God that you find in anywhere in the Word of God. What a wonderful, wonderful uh, passage of Scripture it is. And uh, we'll read it in just a moment. But as we get ready to, one of the things you want to know about any book that you read in the Bible... Is why is it there? What is the background of it? What is the purpose of it? What was the setting of the times in which it was written? And we never want to start, make sure you get this, we never want to start is what, if, what's in there for me and what does this mean to me? What we want to start with is what did the writer mean when he was writing this book? What did he intend? And what did it, how was it understood by the original audience? And that will keep you from going into screwball, out-of-context things that can even lead to false doctrine. We need to know what the book is all about. And as I was thinking about the Gospel of John, I love this book. And uh, this is the book that we take new Christians to almost always. And we say, read the Gospel of John. I heard um, John MacArthur years ago talk about a Jewish atheistic, that's kind of an oxymoron, isn't it? A Jewish atheistic lawyer that came to see him. And uh, they started talking, and it was obvious the man was in no place to hear about anything about the gospel. And uh, so uh, Dr. MacArthur said to him, here's what I'd like for you to do. Go home, get a Bible, read the gospel of John over and over and over until you figure out who Jesus is. It wasn't very long after that, that man came back to his office as a born-again Jewish lawyer because reading through the Gospel of John, he figured out who Jesus is. And that's uh, what we'll see in just a moment is actually 
the purpose of the book. It's not mere history or information. There's an, a definite purpose to it. Now, whenever you think about the four Gospels, people always come up and say, why are there four Gospels? Why not just one? And why do they seem to uh, not cover the same things or say the same things? Well, um, I've heard it explained just the human aspect. People see different things. If we were out here at 104th and Western and there were four of us there that were uh, standing together and then there was a car wreck and the policeman came, comes up to you and then the other three people there and says, what did you see? Well, one person might be a real car buff, kind of like Eddie Altunian is, and they might tell you all about the vehicles that are involved, the year, the make, the color, and the style, and all of that kind of thing. Someone else might be medical, and when they are talking about the wreck, they describe the same wreck, and they're describing it uh, accurately, but they're talking about the blood, they're talking about the broken arms, they're talking about what the medical personnel had to do to keep them alive. And so we could have four different people describing the same thing just from a different aspect. Another person might talk about the noise and uh, all, all of the broken glass and that type of thing. I mean, that's just how we do. We emphasize different things. doesn't mean anybody is lying, and it doesn't mean they're contradicting. We just see different things. Well, when we think about Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, well, that could be, but I don't think that answers the whole situation. Uh, certainly their personality and background were, uh, that, that was involved. When we uh, think some people mistakenly say, well, the Bible was written by the apostles. Well, when you look at the four Gospels, Luke and Mark were not apostles. The Bible was written by apostles or associates that were close to an apostle. And Luke, of course, was a traveling companion of the apostle Paul, so he would get his information from the Lord through Paul. And Mark was a close associate of Paul at one time, and then later the Apostle Peter. So uh, the things that he is saying and sharing certainly would come from the apostles and are included in this. Not to mention, the Bible says, uh, as Peter wrote about it, that men of old were moved by the Holy Spirit when this happened. And so this is a work of the Spirit of God. But even at that... I think that you can see that the four Gospels are like evangelistic tracts. You ever held out a, handed out a tract to somebody? And uh, sometimes tracts are great. Sometimes they're not as appropriate as they ought to be. They may not have enough information. They may not be clear. They may be poorly written. Or you may be like I was. I had a little business card uh, size tract. And on the front of it, it uh, had the YOLO, you only live once. And it said, what will you do after you YOLO? You only live once. And on the back, it went through the Ten Commandments and how we've broken the Ten Commandments and how we need a Savior and Jesus kept the law for us and died on the cross and took the wrath of God for people like us so that we could live forever in heaven. You know, uh, I was getting tracks together for India and you know what? That wouldn't work real well with a Hindu. You know why? You only live once. They don't believe that. And so right off the bat, that would probably be something they would just pitch and discard. That would be, you know, what do you mean you only live once? And uh, so you have to make sure that they are appropriate. And so there are tracks that we would use in India. 
And some of them we could use here. And some of them were specific to a culture or specific maybe even to a language. I wouldn't bother handing out tracts in Hindi here in Oklahoma City because nobody could read it. So there, there is a point where the tract that we write has to be kind of specific to certain people. Did you know the four Gospels are like that? Let's talk about it for a little bit. If we think about Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. First of all, when we talk about Matthew, that is a Gospel tract, an evangelistic tract written by Matthew, the apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ, the former tax collector, and he writes it from a totally Jewish perspective. Now, it doesn't mean a Gentile can't read it and be blessed or be fed or be saved even, but it's going to specifically reach out to Jews. He uses a lot of quotations from the prophets more than anybody else, quotations from the Old Testament. Think about what you know about what it says uh, when Matthew writes about the birth of Christ and when he talks about the crucifixion. There's always something in there that the scripture might be fulfilled, which says... And he's quoting from the Old Testament. This is why Matthew stresses the genealogy right off the bat. To you, it's boring. It's just something to skip over. Kind of like for politicians with Oklahoma, we're flyover country. We don't matter that much. And you treat the Word of God that way when you go through the genealogy and just skip it or skim over it or anything. It was very important because for every Jewish person that read that, it screamed, the genealogy screamed one thing. Jesus is the king. He's the king of the Jews. He's the king of Israel. He's the son of David. He fulfills Old Testament prophecy. And then his life story just kept reiterating that. Jesus did this, that the scripture might be fulfilled, which says this. And any Jew who honestly read that would look at that and come to the conclusion, Jesus is the Messiah. He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Albert Einstein said that the Jewish race is the cream of humanity and Jesus Christ is the cream of the Jewish race. And that's what you find when you look through the gospel of uh, Matthew and that's its purpose in it. Jesus is the King. Jesus is the King of the Jews, the fulfillment of the prophets. And then when you read through the book of Mark, it seems to be different. Have you ever noticed when you read in Mark, there's nothing about his birth, nothing about his heritage, nothing about his genealogy? And that's for a purpose. Mark was written to the Romans. Mark was with Peter in Rome. And when he wrote this story of Jesus Christ, he wrote it in a way that the Romans would understand. And he presents Jesus as a servant. He presents Jesus as a man under authority, as we see uh, him described by a Roman. A Roman uh, centurion came and said, "Speak the word, and my servant will be, or speak the word, and my servant will be healed." And Jesus said, "I'll come to your house. No, I'm not worthy. I too am a man under authority, and when I command somebody to do something, they do it. Speak the word, and my servant will be healed." You know what he was saying? It's being under authority that gives us authority. Why does anybody have the right as a general or an officer in the Army, Navy, Air Force, Marines, Coast Guard? Why do they have any authority to uh, strategize, to send troops in, to make plans? Because they are under the authority of the commander-in-chief. 
And the Romans understood that. The way they were so hyper-organized in their military and in their government, this Roman soldier said, hey, all you have to do is make the command. I get it because I'm under authority like you are under authority from your father. And that's the way Jesus is presented in Mark. Everything is straightforward. It's very short. And uh, there's not a lot of explanation in things, just commands and events. And the favorite word Mark has is immediately or straight away, depending on which translation that you have, is all in there. Jesus is this guy who has such authority and is under the authority of God, the true and the living God. He just makes commands and it happens. So it's written to the Romans. Jesus is the servant of God with authority from God. Uh, and uh, that story about that Roman centurion, you can read that in Matthew chapter 8, verses 9 through uh, 13. A man under authority. And then um, when we think about the gospel of Luke, Luke was written by a guy who wasn't even a Jew. Luke was a Greek. He was a medical doctor, very interested in medical things, very detail-oriented. And so as a medical doctor, you know he's got a lot of interest in the story of the virgin birth. Why is it that every Christmas we read out of Luke 2 and we don't read the genealogy in Matthew in our Christmas programs? It's because Luke tells us more about the birth of Christ than anyone else. Well, you would expect that as a medical doctor. And Luke is a Greek, and he's writing to a Greek. In fact, even in his uh, introduction, he talks about it. And he says in Luke chapter 1, verse 3 and 4, It seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, uh, he was a long-term student, in other words, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may have certainty concerning the things which you have been taught. So Luke is taking this from a Greek perspective, very logical and philosophical, and putting this together for a Greek man named Theophilus. Interestingly enough, Theophilus means lover of God. And this guy had either just become a Christian or was about to. And Luke was interested in him. So the whole book of Luke and the book of Acts, they originally were all one document, were written from a Greek perspective to this Greek man to tell him about Jesus. And so that's Matthew, Mark, and Luke. They are called the synoptic gospels. Synoptic means to say, uh, see the same thing. Optic, to see. And S-Y-N, same same thing. They generally present Jesus in uh, uh, the stories are the same. The setting is the same. It's mainly in Galilee. But John is different and he's got a different emphasis. And his emphasis here uh, is that this is the gospel to the world. A gospel to the world. Not just to Jews. Not just to Greeks. Not just to Romans. This is the one for everybody that is on the planet. And so he emphasizes deity of Christ and that means that Jesus is God in fact he starts off in John chapter 1 and he uh, the prologue of the book of John is just a whole statement about the fact that Jesus is not just a historical figure he was a historical figure but he's much more than that he goes beyond uh, history he is there at the beginning and the beginning is at creation and uh, he pre-existed even before that. He's the eternal son of God. 
And then John is a little bit different because some of the other Gospels, they kind of have a pivot point in their story later on. John gets to it right up front, and there's a turning point. This is one of those head scratchers. When you see who Jesus is in John chapter 1, and you see him as the, the Word, it says, who became flesh and dwelt among us, then he says a puzzling thing in verse 11. He came to his own. And his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them gave he the right, the authority, to become children of God to those who believe in his name. So there are some people who should have believed him and should have accepted him, his own, the Jewish people. And what did they do? They, they didn't receive him. But there were other people who did. And John will uh, go to great pains with his emphasis on the world meaning all people and we hear about Samaritans getting saved and we hear about Romans getting saved and other things like that John is opening it up to uh, the world and anyone who wants to believe and so this is astonishing you would think the easiest people to witness to the easiest people to come to faith in Christ would be the Lord's own people but even his own brothers didn't believe in him until after the resurrection. They thought he was crazy. And they show up at one point, you know, trying to say, hey, just calm down. Let's just go home. You need a little bit of rest. You're losing it. And uh, they didn't believe in him. Well, if his own family didn't believe in him, Mary did, of course. But, um, uh, you know, the rest of the Jews, they had trouble with him as well. And they said, away with him. Let him be crucified at the end of his life. And so um, this, this is an astonishing thing. He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. That's not really what would be expected. But as many as did receive him, and in that is kind of the implication, wherever they may be and whomever they may be, whatever race they may be, whatever color they may be, whatever ethnicity they may be, whether they're Jew or Gentile or Greek or Roman, it doesn't matter, whoever believes in him, to them, he gave them the authority to become the children of God. You have the rights and the privileges of being in the family of God as a son or daughter of the Lord Jesus Christ, an heir of God and a joint heir with Jesus. And so this focus here, we find it all the way through. The idea is that anyone can come from any background, any nation, any part of the world. This is not just a Jewish thing or a Greek thing or a Roman thing, depending on how you might uh, look at it. In fact, he uses the word world in this gospel. He uses it uh, 78 times. 78 times that's in there. And when we think about it, there are some that are very familiar with you. John the Baptist saw Jesus when he was baptizing at the Jordan. And he points and he says, Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the what? World. Yeah. Then when he's talking to Nicodemus, he says that famous verse in John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And there's that emphasis here that this gospel is an intergenerational and an international gospel for which we all are grateful. It works for Gentiles just like it works for Jews. But it's all centered around the word believe. John uses the word believe more than any of the other gospel writers. They use it about half the time that he does. He really emphasizes this. The word believe is used 98 times uh, 
in this 21 chapter gospel and uh, then he tells us there's a reason why he's writing this this is a burden of his heart and this is also from the heart of God because that's the only way John wrote this these things are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ the Son of God and that by believing you may have life in his name and that's in chapter 20 verse 31 isn't that wonderful that these things are written not just so that you might be smart these things are not written just so that you might be uh, you know informed or know your history or anything this is not a mere historical account these things are written and John wrote these things that you might know that Jesus is the Christ that you might believe in him and that in believing in him which includes repenting of your sins and putting your full faith in Christ that you will have life in his name so if you are not saved here today Come to all of these uh, things that we go through out of the book of John and you'll find out who Jesus is. If you've got a lost friend, a uh, family member or something, get them in church and keep them here during this study on the book of John because the purpose of the book is that by believing you may have life in his name. Let's talk a little bit about the author. You say, well, everybody knows it's the Apostle John because it says right up there at the beginning of it, you know, the gospel according to John. Uh, did you know that that is nowhere found in the book? John does not identify himself. Paul would always say, Paul, an apostle of God by the grace of God for the Lord Jesus Christ to the Corinthians or something like that. Uh, John doesn't identify himself in here. In fact, it appears that John doesn't use his name or make any reference to himself except something like uh, the disciple whom Jesus loved. Or the disciple that leaned on his breast at the Last Supper or something like that. Now, that could be because of his humility. Or it could be because by this time when John writes this, he's an older man. He's the only one of the apostles that died of natural causes in his 90s. And uh, maybe by that time he was so well known he didn't need to identify himself. Everybody knew and everybody uh, was aware of all of that. So it's a little bit different than the others. He was living in um, Ephesus when he wrote this. Ephesus is in modern day Turkey. And uh, I know that uh, Preston and Cindy just recently visited there. And uh, they saw this church. And Isaac, I believe you've been there. And uh, this, the ruins of the Basilica of John... And what is believed to be his grave is still there in uh, Turkey. He wrote this sometime around 80 to 90 A.D. So what? Well, here's the importance about that. Did you know that most of the things that we know about Julius Caesar were written like 150 years plus after his death? Long after the lifetime of anybody who would have been an eyewitness of Caesar. And most other uh, ancient uh, heroes and... Um, people that we know about they were written sometimes three and four hundred years after they died well John an eyewitness an apostle of Christ wrote this in 80 to 90 AD in other words within about 50 years of all of these things happening okay uh, I could embarrass some of you and say how many of you can remember things that happened 50 years ago what would 50 years ago be 19 what 73 Am I doing my math right? Because there are three kinds of people in the world, those who can do math and those who can't. And I'm in the can't, okay? I have trouble with that, okay? I can remember, yikes, 
1973. I mean, I remember where we lived. We lived in San Francisco, California. And uh, I can remember some of the things I did, some of the places that I went. And uh, I can remember that uh, during that time, the Watergate was going on. And I remember some things about that. In fact, we had a social studies teacher there in San Francisco that brought in a TV and made us watch those things. Man, that was torture. And uh, I can remember things that happened 50 years ago. In fact, I'm going to make a guess that a lot of you can remember things that happened 50 years ago. It might have been that's when your child was born. It might have been that's when you started your career or something. In other words, it's feasible within 50 years to have people that were eyewitnesses to what Jesus did. Now, why that is important is because when John wrote these things down, he wasn't writing them down when there was nobody who could contest them. He was writing them down when anybody, as this book is passed around, could say, no, that didn't happen. No, that's not the way it was. And he was writing them down within the lifespan of Jesus himself. If Jesus had stayed on earth, not died on the cross, and lived a, a, a normal life, he might have lived like John and lived to be an old man. And uh, th this is within the time frame of uh, people who were still living during that time. Not everybody would live during that time, but a lot of people, enough people would. And this is what's impressive about the Bible. The Bible gives us records about Christ and what he did while the people that observed it were still living, not 300 years later when it's just legend or myth or something like that. They write it down as fact, and they write it down in a way where it could be disputed by the eyewitnesses. John was an eyewitness of the Lord Jesus Christ and his earthly ministry. Now the title of the book, I know in your Bible it says the gospel according to John, but that's not the way it was originally written. In fact, if you see it, um, in fact on that little piece of a, a, a fragment of the gospel of John, it says kata Yohanan, and that just means simply according to John, according to John. And so anybody who got this letter, they would read it. They go, according to John, in the beginning was the word, logos uh, in Greek. And they would start reading all of that. This is according to John. And this is the way that he wrote it, his emphasis and all of that. And again, he never identifies himself in all of this. But uh, one of the things that is interesting is... Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the synoptic gospels, they focus on Galilee, that northern part, that part nobody cared about, that part that was kind of the flyover country of their day, the rednecks, the, the uneducated people, the people that spoke with a weird accent, all of that, the people that were just barely Jews, that was Galilee. But the sophisticated, true Jews and all of that. We have the temple. We've got Jerusalem, the holy city. And we've got Pharisees and Sadducees and all of that. We're in Judea. Well, the synoptics emphasize Christ's ministry to Galilee. John emphasizes Judea. And with that, he fills in uh, some gaps. Let me read you uh, out of the introduction to John, out of the MacArthur Study Bible. If you have that, you can Read it for yourself. But for those of you who don't have it, listen to this. John gives more information and fills in the gaps. First, John applied a large amount of unique material not recorded in the other Gospels. Second, he often supplied information 
that helps us to understand the events in the synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. For example, while the synoptics begin with Jesus' ministry in Galilee, they imply that Jesus had a ministry prior to that. John supplies the uh, answer with information on Jesus' prior ministry in Judea and Samaria. And uh, in Mark, after the feeding of the 5,000, Jesus compelled the disciples to cross the Sea of Galilee to Bethsaida. And John recorded the reason. The people were uh, about to make him king because of his miraculous multiplying of food and Jesus was avoiding their ill-motivated efforts in John chapter 6 26 to make him king and John is also the most theological of the Gospels because he supplied a large amount of unique material not recorded in the other Gospels and he often uh, supplied information that helps the understanding of the events in the synoptics. For example, while the synoptics begin with Jesus' ministry in Galilee. Uh, we already read that, didn't we? Uh, the ministry that is going on there. So we'll let that be enough. That, so it complements the other Gospels. They don't contradict, they complement. And so what you read in Matthew, Mark, and Luke is going to be complemented by what John says, filling in some of the gaps and the things that were happening there. I don't know why that duplicated that particular thing there. I apologize for that. And uh, so we find here that when uh, we read, like in John chapter 1, this idea of Jesus being God. You know, people will say from time to time, well, you know, Jesus never claimed to be God. Or they're just proving they haven't read the New Testament. I haven't read the Gospels. But Jesus said, I and the Father are one, and the Jews wanted to stone him. Now, if he wasn't claiming to be God, why would they want to stone him? And they certainly haven't read the prologue of John. In the beginning of the Word, the Word was with God. Oh, and the Word was God. And then later it tells us who that is. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father. So it's very clear, and John leaves it with uh, absolutely no doubt that uh, Jesus is actually the Son of God. Now, uh, was John aware of the other Gospels? Was John aware of the other Gospels? Yes, he was. And the early church fathers tell us about that. And uh, John wrote his gospel later than Matthew, Mark, and Luke did. And uh, some people have said, well, he was just getting his information from them. But the differences in the book of John are, make it crystal clear that he wasn't just borrowing information from the others because he fills in the gaps. And he mentions things that they don't happen to mention. And uh, he's got a different purpose in mind, and that is to give the gospel to people all over the world, regardless of their ethnicity or anything like that. And so he does this under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Now, John's background, what did he do for a living? What kind of a person was he? Was he an intellectual? Was he a seminary professor? Was he uh, of the elite or anything like that? Well, actually, we know that he was a commercial fisherman, 
Uh, whenever you read about fishermen in the Bible, especially in the Gospels, they weren't just people who fished as a hobby or fished on vacation or fi fished with a pole and a line. You know, you get a line and I'll get a pole, honey. Uh, that's not the way they were. They were fishing in boats. They were fishing with nets. And they were doing it commercially to uh, sell their fish in the market and supply them for food and make a living out of doing that. And so John was one of those, a commercial fisherman. And uh, he was called a son of Zebedee because Zebedee was his dad. And apparently Zebedee was wealthy and John came from a wealthy family. How do we know that? Why do we surmise that? Because in John 18 verse 15 it says, Simon Peter followed Jesus. This is when he's going to trial. And so did another disciple. That would be John. See what he did there? And it, he goes on to say, since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered. John entered, Peter didn't. Why did John go into the house of Caiaphas? Because he knew Caiaphas. What kind of people knew Caiaphas? Not just common, everyday yokel locals. You had to be connected. You had to have some reason to uh, know him. And uh, John and his family were known by Caiaphas, the high priest. We also find another indication in the Gospel of Mark in chapter 1, verse 19. And going on a little further, this is when Jesus is calling his disciples. He saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat mending the nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat. Now look at this. With the hired servants. And followed him. Now not everybody had servants. Not in poverty stricken Palestine during that time. Not in Roman occupied heavily taxed Palestine at that time. But Zebedee did. And he had enough hired servants where James and John could leave the operation to dad. And dad with the hired servants could uh, carry on. Only the very wealthy uh, were able to actually have servants of that nature that would carry on. So it indicates that John probably came not from a poor background, but from a fairly well-off background uh, as he followed the Lord Jesus Christ. We all know something else that ought to make some of you feel better. John had a temper. This apostle of love, as he is known, who wrote so much about love, God loving the world, we ought to love one another. Uh, you can read his other letters and find more about that. This guy was a guy with a temper. In Mark chapter 3, verse 17, it says, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom Jesus gave the name... You ever heard that name? Boanagus, and uh, that means son of thunder. Why did he say that? Well, in Luke chapter 9, verse 54... And when his disciples, James and John, saw it, the rejection of Christ by the Samaritans, they said, Lord, do you want us to call fire to come down from heaven and consume them? This is a guy who got mad. This is a guy that that nickname was not just, you know, something that was based on fact. This is a guy who would get angry, he and his brother, the sons of thunder, calling down fire. That sounds like an apostle of love, doesn't it? When you look at that thing. But uh, I ought to give you hope. If you've got a bad temper. God can use you too. And God can change you. Because as John grew in the Lord. And as he got older. Apparently that temper settled down. Didn't it? 
John was an exile on Patmos. Uh, he was arrested in Ephesus, and he was taken to this island. And uh, we don't know if it was deserted or not, but he was put on the island with no way to escape, kind of an Alcatraz-type situation, if you know what that is, in San Francisco Bay, that old prison there. And there he is on uh, Patmos. Now, he was, that's where he wrote the book of Revelation, by the way. And uh, he was set free from Patmos, apparently because of advanced age. He went back to Ephesus, and there he died, and uh, there he was buried. He's the only disciple that was able to live out a full life like that. All the others were martyred. It reminds me of in John chapter 21, Peter and the others are out fishing after the resurrection. And uh, John says to Peter, look at the guy on the bank, it's the Lord. And Peter puts on his outer robe and jumps into the water and swims to shore. You remember that? And that's when the interchange, uh, Jesus said, Peter, do you love me? And Peter would say, yes, I do. Feed my sheep, feed my sheep, that, that type of thing. And uh, you remember that Jesus, as he also was telling Peter, feed my sheep, he also said, when you were young, you put on your clothes and you went wherever you wanted to go. But I'm telling you, there's going to come a time when you're older that they will stretch forth your hands and take you where you don't want to go. And then John explains, this was Jesus signifying by what death Peter would glorify God. In other words, Peter is going to be crucified. Stretch out your hands. Peter says, when he looks at John, he goes, well, what about him? And Jesus said, if it's my will for him to, uh, to live until I return, what's that to you? You follow me. And it's a strong statement for us. We're too busy looking around. Well, what about them? And the Lord is saying to us, just like he said to Peter, don't worry about them. You, you follow me. And uh, the Bible goes on to say in John 21 that there was a rumor that John was going to live until the Lord Jesus returned. Well, it probably seemed like it. He was about 93 when he died, and he's the only one of the uh, disciples who had the privilege of living that long. And, uh, of course, as we said, buried in um, uh, Ephesus, which is in Turkey. And the central question about the Gospel of John is simply this. Who is Jesus? And that's really the point that we have. That's, that's why we gather here. That's why we witness to other people. That's the central question about life. Who is Jesus? If you don't know who Jesus is, then you don't have any hope of going to heaven. And uh, as Alistair Begg said, he is either a good man, a bad man, or he is the God man. You just don't have any other choice in all of that. And so I want you, uh, as we conclude here, I want you to look in John chapter 1, and we're just going to read these verses because it tells us who the Lord is, and it gives us the idea with all we know about the introduction now, where John was going. Boy, he has a laser focus on this because it says in verse 1 of John 1, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. And all things were made through him. And without him, nothing was made that was made. In him was life. And the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness. And the darkness did not 
Uh, my translation here, New King James, says comprehend it. That's not a good translation of that word. The word comprehend should actually be translated the, light, uh, the darkness did not overcome it. Overcome it. Light always overcomes darkness, and Jesus certainly did. And so we look at this and we find out a little bit about who Jesus is, where John is going, and we'll talk more about that. We don't have time this week, but we'll talk about it uh, next week about the wonderful, wonderful truth about who Jesus is and how John begins to take with a laser focus this gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus is God and his gospel is for Gentiles as well as Jews. And as a, a Gentile, I thank God for that. I'm glad that we weren't left out. I'm glad that we didn't have to become something that we're not. I'm glad that we didn't have to conform to rules and regulations and practices and things like that that even the Jews themselves couldn't uh, actually uphold. And now you put it on us, couldn't do it. But God loved the world. And God saves people from every part of the globe, every ethnicity, every culture, every skin color. And that's a problem for us. You see, the seeker-sensitive church says what you need to do is find out who your target audience is. And that's basically people like you and then go after them. That's not the gospel. The gospel says go after those people you don't understand. Go after those people that don't like you. Go after those people who have pierced everything that they could and their hair is 47 shades of different colors and all of that. We're to go after everyone. Jesus said share the gospel with every creature on the earth wherever they may be and don't just isolate it to just people that are like us. We are to share the gospel with everyone and John is the one that informs us of that and pushes us and he also explains Jesus to people that are from any culture any tribe any tongue any place on earth and later he writes about in uh, Revelation about a time when we're all going to be gathered together the church universal from all ages all times all countries and he talks about people all being together around the throne of the Lamb of God from every tribe and every tongue. And I'm so glad that the Lord does that. And heaven is going to be an extremely interesting place when we get around people from all parts of the globe. And yet we all have one theme. Jesus saved us through the gospel, through his death, burial, and resurrection. And he is indeed Lord of all. And we'll all worship him and sing his praises together. And that is something to look forward to. You're going to be in on that. And you're going to see just how great the work of God was. Because this religion of Christianity, as some people would uh, see it, should have lived and died in Palestine 2,000 years ago. But it didn't. It's worldwide. We're still talking about it today. And that's because what John says in this, stay with us, and if you're a skeptic, and if you're a skeptic, I'm glad you're here. This is where you belong, and you need to be hearing this. But read through the book of John, and follow along as we teach through it, and come to know who your Lord and Savior is. And if you already know Him, my prayer is that you will love Him and appreciate everything that He has done even more, because He is indeed 
worthy of our praise. If you've never trusted Him today, I pray that you would. I pray that you'll talk to somebody that is around you and say, how, do I, how, how am I to be born again? And uh, you may be different than us. You may not relate to all of us, but that doesn't matter because our relationship is not in our politics or our economy or our skin color or anything like that. Our oneness and our commonness is in Jesus Christ. He shed His blood for us. His Spirit indwells us. And we are His children. As Psalm 100 says, we are the sheep of His pasture. And we would like for you to join us as well. Let somebody explain that to you. I'll be happy to talk to you. But the most important thing is to know who Jesus is. So, let's bow our heads and let's close our eyes. And let's say thank you to the Lord for His Word and for John and all that He tells us about. Father, we thank You that You use people like this, bad-tempered fishermen like John, and yet You changed his life into a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ, into the apostle of love, and You presented through him to everybody on earth that Jesus is the God-man. And I pray, Lord, that every believer in this room will be convinced of that. And I pray that every lost person in this room or the sound of my voice through the Internet would come to have their conscience stirred and their heart drawn to Jesus Christ to find out through the Gospel of John that He is exactly who He says He is. No one else is like Him. There is no other Savior and there is no other way to heaven except through Jesus Christ. In fact, in John 14, 6, John quotes Jesus saying, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. Sounds kind of narrow-minded, and yet he opens that up to anybody on the globe at any time, any place, any culture, and uh, at, on any date. Thank you, Lord, that your invitation is an open one for sinners like us. We praise you for that. We thank you for the Apostle John. We thank you for what he wrote and that it was written under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, preserved for us. Thank you so much for your wonderful, inerrant, infallible, all-sufficient word. We love you, Lord, and we look forward to talking about all of the things that you did while you were on earth. Help us to know you better and to love you more. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.